Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. It is really good to see all of you today and we're going to... uh or what we're doing in this Advent series is we're doing something a little bit different. A lot of times uh, with Advent series, and this is a great thing to do, we look at the Old Testament and all of the promises that God gave hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came and how he made these promises and then fulfilled them in Jesus. And that is an awesome thing to study. When you look at that, I think there's over 125 specific promises that were given hundreds of years before Jesus, thousands of years, and Jesus literally fulfilled every single one of them. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, I, I read a, a book one time that there was a, a, st- a mathematician in like Stanford University that took a math class and said, what is the probability that one man would fulfill eight of the prophecies? And the probability turned out to be the equivalent of taking silver dollars and covering the state of Texas three feet deep and that in one and put the star on the back of one and that you get one shot to bend down and pick up the one silver dollar with a star on the back. That's the probability of one man fulfilling eight of the promises. Jesus fulfilled all 125. And now you may be thinking, well, he he was able to control some of that. Couldn't control where he was born. <laughs> he couldn't control the Roman world to gamble for his clothes, right? Like these are amazing things of an amazing savior. But what we're doing in this time is we're actually going to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Now buckle your seatbelt. Some of you may be terrified that we're in the book of Revelation. You don't need to be. It's an amazing, amazing gift that God has given to us. And we're gonna look at how this faithful God who was faithful to do all the promises to fulfill them in the past, is the same God that will fulfill every single one of them in the future. And there is a second coming that's happening. Jesus promised, I will come again. And so we want to sit in the middle of these two advents. We look back and remember, God, you were faithful. It is finished. You did the work. You did it all. And I know you'll come again. See, God is the maker of heaven and earth. He made all things. He made everything we can see and everything that we cannot see. He made the farthest heavens and the most massive objects, which are honestly beyond our ability to comprehend. But he also made all of the subatomic particles that we cannot see that act really weird and do things that just mind-boggle scientists. He made the natural laws of the universe. He established order. He put everything in its particular place and he made us. And he made it all good. In perfect harmony and in wholeness. It's what we were talking about last night, shalom. He made it as it should be. He made us, he made mankind to know him and gave us the privileged authority to represent him on the earth, giving us tremendous power to be used 
within the context of our relationship with him. The creator even made us creators. You ever thought about that? He gave us the ability to reproduce more image bearers. I love that this church is filled with little image bearers of God. Have more if you're able. If you're able. We're done. <clears throat> but he also gave us the creativity to subdue the world around us. We were called to exercise the authority for the glory of God, not ourselves. And we were to also exercise this authority for the good of the world around us. Guys, this gives tremendous, tremendous purpose to your existence. Tremendous purpose to our existence. But as Darren shared a minute ago, something did happen. And it changed everything. Satan, the great enemy of God, came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, with cunning words that God was a liar. Came with words that said, God really hasn't given us all the good there is to be had. He came to us and, and, and deceived us that we didn't have to submit our lives to this maker, but instead we could become our own gods, determining our own identities, our own future, our own truth. In other words, God, give me your seat and you actually become the one that serves me and makes my life better. And then we began to use our power and responsibility for ourselves thereby rejecting this good God. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were deceived and they rebelled, not believing what God had said. And, we, and because of that, mankind thrust all of creation into chaos. This fall had consequences. This fall caused our peaceful relationship with God to now become broken and one of enmity. Our relationship with one another became filled with selfishness and violence. And our relationship with the rest of creation became one of frustration and toil. I'm very keen of that living more in a rural community now that our relationship with the earth ain't that easy, is it? <laughs> right? What was pronounced good is now warped. What was once God's image is now marred. And the world which was to be subdued in goodness has been subdued by wickedness, giving the broken world that we see. Yet, there are still marks of beauty. There are still marks of wonder. There is still good and beauty in the world. Yes, we are still in the image of God, but we all know, don't we? I don't really need to sell us on this, do I? We all know something's not right. We all know that the world is not as it should be. We just, we, we just we're walking through a community-wide tragedy, looking at the passing of a 15-year-old girl, and that alone tells us something's wrong. That's not right. But you know what? The same is true when someone is in a casket at 87 years old. We all know something isn't right. 
But there's hope. There's hope. All is not lost. And this hope was given in a promise by God himself that what was lost will not remain so forever, that the curse of sin and all its wreckage will be overturned and done away with. You guys know that is fundamentally the promise of the gospel. All this brokenness is not for nothing. All of this brokenness does not win the final word. There's a better word coming. And Genesis 3.15 gives us the seed of this promise, like a seed that goes in the soil and then grows, and you go, oh, that's what that plant's supposed to look like. This seed of promise that the rest of Scripture grows for us, we see God speaking directly to the serpent who deceived us. And God said this, it'll be up on the screen. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head, or, his, or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, snake, you're going to give him a wound, he's going to kill you. He's going to destroy you, and it will come from the seed of a woman. From this seed of, uh, of woman, one will come. God is saying, a promised Savior who will destroy our tempter, who is truth which forever stands against the liar, who also can redeem the lost creation and, and mankind. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about this promise. Because as God is getting ready to cast us out of his presence, because now we can't live in God's presence apart from something being done. Right? So this is what happens. I love this. This is what it says. It says, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. Oh, that captures the heart of a God who loves his world. During this Advent season, we take time to celebrate the, that God fulfilled this promise in spades. He did send a son born of a woman, a virgin named Mary. And the fulfillment of this promise is none other than Jesus Christ. God's unique beloved son in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Jesus is God in flesh. We do not hold him on par with anyone else. It's not Jesus, Muhammad, uh, Gandhi, and, and Buddha. It's Jesus alone. It was through Jesus we're told that all things were made. It is Jesus through whom the world is held together. And 1 John 3, 8 says that the reason why he came was to destroy the works of the devil. But yet, the world is still in chaos, isn't it? Why? Was his work without an effect? Is the battle that's being fought for for the souls of people and the good of the world, is it an outcome that remains to be seen like an Avengers movie? I wonder if they're going to beat Thanos. I hope they're strong enough. 
Is life really a battle of a strong God against an equally strong Satan? And we're in the middle getting pushed and pulled and ravaged, hoping that the good God, that the good guy will win? Well, the book of Revelation gives the answer to these questions. And it is meant to provide enduring comfort and joy to those who belong to Jesus. If you're a Christian and you are terrified of the book of Revelation, you do not understand it. It is a book of ultimate joy. Theologian G.K. Beale summarizes the book of Revelation this way. I have a quote on the screen here. It's kind of long, but it's phenomenal. It says, the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and the apparent satanic domination. It is the Bible's battle cry of victory. For in it, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, it is revealed the final victory of God over the forces of evil. Revelation is the ultimate battle cry of victory. I don't know about you, I'm a Braveheart guy. Love the movie Braveheart. That's awesome. We need an ultimate battle cry of victory. It is God's victory over all forces of evil. Let that sink in for just a minute as to what the promise that's, in it, that, that's encased in that is. That it's not just a fanciful wish and it's not just a mere platitude. But, as a, but, but, but is a sincere hope bringing joy that leads to eternity. This morning, we're going to do a flyover of three chapters of Revelation. And I'm going to do it in the next 20 minutes. You ready? Ish. I'm an ish guy. I'm an ish guy. But I promise, not going to be long. NFL starting. We're going to look at Revelation 12 through 15.4. This is a very important section in the book. And it, uh, as it reveals to us that even though it seems that evil which is called the dragon, has won and controls the world. It seems like that. But it tells us that there's a true and better word we can rely on and that this true and better word and this story is the story of history. So our big idea this morning is this. Despite all the power of the dragon, Christ has securely sealed his people for salvation and perfectly executes justice on the dragon and his followers. And he does this for his own glory and the good of his people. I'm not going to read every verse in the section so you can breathe a sigh of relief. However, I encourage you to read every verse in this section. We could honestly spend weeks in this section. But what I want to do is I want to give a, a, a flyover of the big ideas that this section is trying to teach us and how it should shape us both individually and as a congregation. And so for our first point, let's look at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and, her head, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains 
and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has, place, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 years days. So here's the deal. I just need you to know right off the bat, there is a lot of imagery in these two chapters, a lot of imagery. We are not going to dive into all of them. Okay. Um, but I want you to get this. Remember, we're doing big idea. We're, we're, we're on the airplane, 50,000 feet in the sky. Here's what I want you to see. Two signs appear to John in heaven, a woman and a dragon. The woman has a particular appearance and is pregnant and crying out in birth pains and gives birth to a male child. The dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns, and he ain't happy. He is not happy about this child being born and seeks to destroy the child, but what we learn, he is unable to by the power of God. This child, he's waiting for him to come out, you know, like a dad ready to meet his baby. Come on. That's how it works, right? My, my wife had C-section, so I don't know how this works, but, Right? I stood over the curtain going, holy cow. <laughs> but, but, but like, so, so like this dragon, evil is waiting for this woman to give birth because they got to kill that child. They got to get rid of that child. But yet the child is caught up and brought to the throne of God. And we learn that this child is one who rules the nations with a rod of iron and is exalted to the very throne of God. We're going to get more on that in a minute. So the question is, who is the woman who is the dragon, and who is the child. This is important for us to consider as we look at this whole section that we're going to look at. The woman represents the faithful people of God. There is rich imagery that you can go back to Genesis chapter 37 where we see God's people being represented by the sun, moon, and stars. So this, is, this woman is not a literal woman. It's a figure it's a, it's a representative of the faithful people of God, faithful Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And that becomes clear that it's looking at not just Israel, but the whole church. If we go down to, to chapter 12, verse 17, where it talks about how the dragon wants to kill all of her offspring. This is the people of God being represented in the woman. The dragon represents the evil kingdoms of the world who hate God and hate his people. The seven heads, the crowns, and the horns, what that represents is the completeness of their oppressive power throughout the earth. But the dragon also represents Satan, who is the head of all of these man-made empires. Does that make sense? The child is none other than Jesus Christ who was born from a woman from the nation of Israel, who is also the cornerstone of the church throughout the ages. So you get what I'm saying? Woman represents the people of God. The dragon represents evil and Satan. 
The child is Jesus who was born from Israel and is the savior of all of his people. He is the promised savior who reigns in power, but who also became our suffering servant, laying down his life for the redemption of his people. So here's our first big point. In light of this, of this, the first truth that we need to consider is this. Know what's truly going on in the world. There is a mighty conflict between the world and God's people, which stems from Satan's hatred and rebellion, as well as mankind's rejection and rebellion against God. This is the ultimate narrative of all history and all future history. Evil hates God. Evil hates his people. Do you know throughout time, do you know who the most persecuted people group in the world is today? Christians. Do you know that they have been the most persecuted people group for 2,000 years? The Jews and the church. It's not even close. There's a report that just came out a couple of weeks ago. This is not reported in our country. 18 nations around the world have increased their persecution of Christians around the country. One of our own ministry partners in India, I sent out this video to our team, was sitting in his house with his wife and children just a week ago and had a mob break into his house and beat him and threaten him simply because he's a pastor in the community. This is the story of history, guys. The conflict includes the suffering and the persecution of Christ's people, which we learn is akin to an attack on God himself. It's kind of like, if you come after my wife, you're coming after me. I don't know if that intimidates you or not, but nonetheless, there it is. <laughs> but in a similar way, you come after God's people, you're coming after God himself. This is why we read further down in chapter 12, which we're not going to get to these verses, but you can go read yourself. The dragon pursues the woman and the rest of her offspring with fury. He sought to destroy the woman Israel. He sought to destroy the ruler that's born from her, Jesus, and he makes war on the rest of her offspring. That's the church. This is the very real drama that has been playing out in the world since Adam and Eve. We've got to know the story of history. This is not a struggle of Republicans versus Democrats. This is ultimately not a story of, of America versus Al-Qaeda. This is not just a story of Russia and Ukraine. There is evil in the world seeking to devour the world and Christ's people. Which leads to the second major point. We must understand the hatred and the deception of the dragon. One of the most dangerous things we can do is we cannot take God as seriously as we should and we don't take evil as seriously as we should. Evil around us and evil in us. Here's what you need to understand. By the way, we're not going to end here. We're going to end where the text ends. But we got to go here for a minute. The dragon hates God. The dragon hates Jesus. The dragon hates his people and the dragon hates you. It ain't even close. And he hates you so much that he is willing to make nice and to look good and to appeal to you, to tease your senses, to go, oh, maybe he really doesn't like me. And then, boom, he's got you. Hates you. 
in his earthly power, he strives to do everything he can to deceive the nations, to worship him, to reject God, and to hate his people. This is ultimately what all of Revelation chapter 13 is about when it talks about these two beasts. Again, there's a lot we can talk about about that, but just big idea, big, big idea. The dragon's power extends throughout the earth and it spreads lies to garner worship and to make war on his church. That's what chapter 13 verses 5 to 7 tell us. Yet he knows he's defeated, but he strives to cause as much damage as he can. See, Revelation 13 is clear and warns us that alignment with the world and its priorities and its ideology is aligning directly with the dragon. There is no middle ground. It's like you're either a Hawkeye or a Cyclone. You can't, there, there are no, I, I, I don't know how. I know you have kids that are, you have that flag, but I know in your heart there, there, that, there, there's, a, there's a stand somewhere. <laughs> I know in your heart you love your kids, but you're on, you're on, you're on one side or the other, <laughs> right? Hey, amen. We are a Hawkeye church that is tolerate cyclones. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We love Mizzou, New Mizzou too. Hey. Um, but this is a, guys, this is a reality check for all of us to realize that outside of a relationship with Christ, we're all followers of the dragon. The disease of rebellion and rejection of God has been passed down to us. It's in our very nature. However, this is not what has the final word. No matter how powerful the dragon and his beast seem to be, they are not above the power of God. Though they want to be like him, they fall ever short of him. They are poor substitutes for the completeness of God and his kingdom. This is what the number 666 means, by the way. It's not this evil, powerful thing. It's a mocking number. That their kingdom is not complete. Their kingdom is not powerful. See, the number of completion in the scriptures is seven. And the number of the Trinity is seven, seven, seven. Complete, whole, lacks nothing. The number of the beast is six, six, six. It's counterfeit. It's not complete. You don't have to be scared of the number 666. It's a mocking number of the dragon and the beasts. Which leads to our third point. I told you, we're flying. We're flying. See Christ and his work from a larger perspective. So number one, we got to know what's really going on in history. Number two, we got to know that a part of that history is the, the hatred of the dragon. And number three, to know and see Christ and his work from a larger perspective. See, Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. The Savior, born of a woman, who destroys the enemy that we can't. No matter how hard the dragon tries to defeat God and his Christ, no matter how powerful his kingdom or how fervently he seeks to ravage the people of God, he is decisively defeated and will never ultimately succeed. This is why it says the dragon was cast out of heaven. He knows he can't overcome us. like Southwest Valley Friday. They know they were beat, but I'm going to do as much damage as I can. <laughs> you still sore at all? A little bit? It's good because you're tougher than that. See, Jesus Christ rules the nations, we're told. 
He's the child that rules the nations with with a rod of iron. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has come to break and to shatter the dominion of darkness. And he will do it with a rod of iron. Notice it doesn't say Jesus has the shepherd's crook. See, shepherds carried two things. They carried the shepherd's crook for the sheep, and they carried a rod. And the rod was to beat wolves with. The, sh- the crook has a crook, so when a lamb got, 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 you know, uh, gets in trouble, they could pull him, they could guide him, they could direct him, they could help him. The rod, that's for beating wolves away. That's for protecting the sheep and keeping your fold pure. And Jesus has a rod of iron that will break and destroy the evil kingdoms of the beast. He ain't playing. He destroys the kingdom of the dragon and he will establish the world as it was originally intended to be in goodness and in justice. Christ delivers those who belong to him from the kingdom of darkness and the enslaving of our sinful hearts where we can be forgiven, we can be saved, and we can overcome the wickedness of the world. Not because you've earned it or worked hard enough for it, but because you can't and he earned it and worked hard for it so that you can sing the song of grace. God's people have conquered the dragon, our great accuser, because Christ has conquered him. Look at what it says in, in, in Revelation. It says this. It says, uh, I love this. It says, after the dragon was thrown down out of heaven, it says, and I heard in a loud voice from heaven. This is verse 10, verse chapter 12. Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We stand and sing, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has saved me. Jesus has saved me. Christ's work and his life, death, and resurrection have global and cosmic consequences. For in him, God makes peace with all things and reconciles them back to himself. And through this, Jesus breaks the dominion of darkness and will establish the kingdom of light forever and ever and ever and ever. I sincerely urge, I fervently plead with you to see Jesus as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. See him as immense. See him as powerful, as wonderfully good, as the ruler of the nations and our only hope of salvation. That doesn't make you weak. That doesn't make you pathetic that you need a savior. That makes you honest. And true strength is found when we realize we need his strength, not my own. He is the way of salvation for all who come to him, recognizing their need for mercy from God in faith. He is also the way of justice who will bring right and good judgment on all evil and evildoers. The same savior is the same judge. And we will either stand before Christ as and call him Savior and rejoice, or we will look on him with fear as judge. This is what Revelation, or every single person who humbly comes to Christ, asking forgiveness for their sin, confessing with their mouth, and believing in their heart that he is this powerful God, are made new and are securely sealed forever with the blessed hope of being with God in his new heavens 
at his new earth. This is what passages like Revelation 12, verses 10 to 12 say. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We're going to read this in a second. This is what Revelation 14, 1 to 5 talks about, about this people that are sealed on their foreheads and sing a new song. This is what Revelation 15, 12, 2 to 4 says, where, it's, where, where the people of God are rejoicing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. These are songs of redemption, songs of salvation, songs of joy. Despite the overwhelming warping of sin in all of us, and despite the power of the dragon, Christ's people are victorious because Christ is victorious. And this victory is sealed, it is secured, and it is permanent. How did Stevie Wonder sing it? Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Right? Which leads to our final point. We'll wrap up here. Embrace and rest in the perfect hope of Christ. Know what the story of history is. Know there's an evil that hates the world and you and God. Know that there is a Savior that is better. And embrace and rest in that Savior. Look at what Revelation 14 says. I said I'd read it. We'll read it real quick. Again, a lot of symbolism here. I'll do my best to give the overview. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on uh, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn, the, learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and for the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I can only imagine the question staring around in your head right now. Here's the primary thrust of this text. God's people dwell securely with God in Christ. In his perfect and protective presence. As opposed to the enemies of God who fall under his wrath and judgment. This is what Mount Zion means. Mount Zion is the dwelling place of God. It is the temple of God. It's saying God is dwelling in and with his people. That's Mount Zion. And what it means to be sealed with his name, it means that he stamped us as his. You belong to me. I've got you. I dwell with you. I have sealed you with my grace. And the song that we sing, everywhere in the scriptures, when it says we sing a new song, it's a song of victory. Think about it. every time we won a football game, we sang should have been a cowboy, right? It's a song of victory. Y'all didn't know that, did you? It's going to change the way you hear that song. I get pumped up every time I hear it now. But the church sings a song of victory, a song of deliverance. It is a song of redemption that celebrates and worships the mighty God who has brought them out of bondage, freed them from their enemies, and delivered them to a safe and secure land. And only those who belong to Jesus know this song. No one else can sing it. It's just theirs. 
and not one of Christ's people will be missing. This is what the number 144,000 means. If we look at Revelation 7 that talks about 144,000, and we look here, it talks about the 144,000, I don't have time to go into it all, but here's what it essentially means. It does not mean a literal 144,000 people. It is representative of the full people of God. Not one will be missing. Every single one of Christ's people that he bled, died for, and saved, not one will be forgotten. Not one will be cast out. Not one will, not, not, not one will be hopeless. They will all be there. Christ executes the justice we all long for. Evil will be purged. The dragon will be dealt with. Evildoers will receive their just due for seeking to dismiss, replace, and dethrone the God of creation. That's what the next 11 verses talk about. And in Christ, we do not need to fear death or the wickedness of this world, this passage, these passages tell us. In fact, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. And I heard a, a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead. Whew. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. When we are found in Christ, death is a blessing. Well, that tips the scales, doesn't it? Seriously? Oh, death, where is your sting? The grave has lost its power because Christ came roaring out of it. And we can rest from our labors, knowing that our faith in Christ and all that we've done for him will go and be a crown we lay at his feet and we will hear, well done. I've prepared a place. So rejoice, Christian. God has not destined his people for wrath, but for a glorious, glorious hope. As followers of Christ in light of this glorious Advent season, where we look back to God's faithfulness to send a deliverer that he promised, who is Christ the Lord, long for, eagerly hope in, and live in light that he's coming again. Do not grow weary, Christian. By all the evil of this world, nor the suffering it brings, I'm not minimizing its hardship. But do not let it take the joy from your heart. Do not think that your God is impotent. Hear the call that is repeated twice in chapter 13, verse 10, and chapter 14, verse 12. Endure. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because despite all the power of the dragon, Christ has securely sealed his people for salvation and perfectly executes justice on the dragon and his followers. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm done. If you are here today and you have not intentionally bowed the knee to Jesus and come to him by faith, will you hear, oh, I pray you hear the eternal good news. I pray you hear it being proclaimed to you today. 
Will you fear God and turn to him as God? Will you turn to Christ for salvation or will you continue to try to trust yourself? Or some philosophy that you know really doesn't work anyway when the crap really hits the fan. The hour of his judgment, yeah, it's part of this too. It is coming. And if you're not found in Christ, he will not be your savior. He will be your judge. But his hand of mercy is being offered to you. His his offer of grace is being extended to you. Will you receive it by faith and allow grace to cover you and give you a new song to sing? We all want justice to be brought to this world, don't we? We really do. But do we honestly realize what that also means for us? We can't have it both ways. Justice will come to the world and you too before a holy and almighty God. We are all guilty before him. But God sent his son to deliver us from sin, from darkness and judgment. He accomplished this through his own suffering and death and then rising again to new life so that his death for sin can be our death to sin, so that his new life can be our new life and a new life free to love and serve God in the world, living in the reality that one day all things will be made new. Do you believe it? Do you rest in it? Do you long for it? It will not disappoint you. He promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning and the ramblings of a frail man. But through it, God, may your eternal gospel penetrate all of our hearts this morning to, yes, see what's really going on in the world, to understand the hatred of evil and our enemy, but yet to look to a stronger and better Savior who gives to us an eternal, eternal hope and help us all to run the race of life with endurance. That all of us would be found with your name sealed on our forehead and that we would all today sing the song of the redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.